You know, I hear an amen. Amen. <laughs> Following steps of Bethany and her uh, version of Amazing Grace, my favorite. <clears throat> Good to be here. Have the opportunity to bring God's word to you again this morning. And we did uh, switch out. We were going to do Psalm 36, and I uh, decided to uh, change to John 16. So that's our text this morning. According to the church calendar, last Sunday was uh, uh, Pentecost. Now, I don't know of any church which really celebrates Pentecost very much. Not like we celebrate Christmas, for example, another key day in the church calendar. But may I suggest that what happened on the day of Pentecost is as profound for Christians as what happened on Christmas. Pentecost was originally a Jewish holiday, 50 days after the Passover. But Christians remember it as the day that God's Spirit descended on the church. That event changed everything for Jesus' disciples. Not just back then, but from then on. And so we're laying aside verse, uh, Psalm 36 and... Uh, going to think more carefully about what Jesus said about the Spirit coming. Our text is John 16, and here Jesus is speaking to his disciples about what is about to take place, and, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. John 16, verses 1 to 16. Let me read it for you. I have said all the, Jesus is speaking. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here in John 16, Jesus describes uh, 
for his disciples some of the great benefits that uh, will come because of what happens at, at Pentecost. But here, the protests of his disciples illustrates how they and we often fail to comprehend what God was doing. So that's going to end up giving us two points here. The first point is this. Jesus promised to do things we could never imagine. Jesus promised to do things we could never imagine. Jesus' disciples had traveled with him for three years, but even they could not comprehend what Jesus was about to do. And the truth of the matter is many Christians today still do not comprehend what Jesus foretold. In our text, Jesus describes how his work will be transformed after Pentecost. Just let me mention two things. There are more things, but two are kind of mentioned in this text. One, the Holy Spirit will make Jesus' presence more profound. That's one thing that's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will make Jesus' presence more profound. Have you ever wondered how how it would be if you could have walked along the shore of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, or if how much easier it would be to believe if you could actually hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount with your own ears? Wow, that would just be wonderful, wouldn't it? Think of how much better those disciples had it than we do. Oh, but Jesus knows that there's more to it than that. For you see, when Jesus was not around... The disciples got, fin- uh, got frantic. Where is he? Where is he? Remember when the time when Jesus went out to pray early in the morning? And, and, and they came looking for him. Come, come on, Jesus. People are waiting. Unfortunately, the people waiting were disappointed because he actually went to preach in a different place. But I suspect that if Jesus were here in the flesh still, he might, rather than preaching at Wiser Lake Chapel this morning, he might be off to Chicago to speak out there somewhere. And we would be disappointed. But then again, nobody could be at two places at once, right? But Jesus was about to change that. Back in John 14, Jesus made this promise. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. God the Father and God the Son now ascended into heaven, sent God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to go fill the church with his presence. So no longer do we search for Jesus. By his Spirit, he dwells with us all the time. Now, some would say, well, then why do I feel so lonely sometimes? Well, we certainly can understand the limits of our senses. We don't see Jesus with our eyes. We don't touch him with our hands. 
but still he promises that he is with us and in us. And he not only promises that, but he also made us members of a whole body of believers in whom he dwells and whom he calls to love and encourage and be there for one another. Something that we never could have dreamed could happen, Jesus more profoundly present with us than what the disciples knew. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled God's ancient commitment We read it in the book of Hebrews. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Indeed, Jesus made good the very last words he spoke before he ascended into heaven. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promised to do something we could not have imagined. His Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit, Jesus makes his presence more profound than ever. There's another thing that Jesus promised to do when the Spirit came. He promises that the Spirit will convict and convince people of God's truth. The Holy Spirit will convict or convince people of God's truth. I suspect some of you have gotten into good debates with unbelievers and concerning the things of God. If you've done that, uh, you may know that it often seems rather hopeless. You kind of feel like you're speaking to a dead person. So you could go to seminary, you could take apologetics courses and learn how to answer all the philosophies of the day. But when you talk to someone who actually believes all those philosophies, They don't comprehend what you're talking about. You and I are powerless, really, to change people's hearts. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us what we're up against. The God of this world, we read, the God of this world has blinded the the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of of the gospel. Ah, but Jesus tells his disciples he's about to do what we cannot do. He is about to send his spirit into the world, into the lives of his disciples, and the spirit of God will do through us what we cannot do on our own. According to verse 8, he will convict or convince people concerning their sin of refusing to believe in Jesus, concerning their disregard for the lack of righteousness, and concerning the certainty of judgment coming. Folks, you and I can talk all day and find we never change anybody's mind. But the Spirit of Jesus working through us convicts and convinces. The Apostle Peter was a powerful example of this. Let's think about him for a minute. When Jesus was on trial before the authorities, Peter was out warming his hands by the fire, and he was so afraid of what was going on that he cowered before a servant girl there who asked him, Don't, aren't you one of the 
this, this Jesus people. And he denied with an oath that he ever knew this Jesus. That's Peter. Fifty days later, a spirit-filled Peter said this. This Jesus, who was a man accredited to, by miracles which God did, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead and has made him both Lord and Messiah. Oh, that's not a denial, is it? And what happened when Peter called them out on this? Well, we read, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. There's a difference between Peter trying to go one-on-one with an unbelieving servant girl and a spirit-filled Peter going with the whole crowd who cried, crucify, crucify. That does not mean that everyone we speak to will change their heart and follow Christ. Clearly some will not. But apart from the illumination that the Holy Spirit gives, you and I can talk all day and all night, and no one will ever turn from their sin and trust the Savior. Jesus promised to do things we could not imagine. To make Jesus' presence with us all the time more real than ever. And to convince and convict sinners in a way that we could never do. That brings us to our second point. God works his plans in our darkest hours. God works his plans in our darkest hours. Have you ever noticed how sorrow and depression and anxiety seem to make your world stand still. Everything is preempted by grief, by trouble, duties left undone, commitments go unmet, plans are abandoned, life just stops. You probably know how that feels. It's dark. It's dark. But this morning I want you to know that God works his plans even when it's dark. In our darkest hours, God is working his plans. I suspect most of us have not taken seriously the anguish of these disciples because we know already how things all turned out. They didn't know how things were going to turn out. So think about them for a moment. These were not just casual friends of Jesus. Every one of those disciples had left his business, abandoned his career to follow Christ. But even that was not just their decision. Jesus had chosen them from a large group of followers. He had designated them as his apostles. 
giving them a, a official representative status. He had been training them. He had given them power to do miracles in his name. And they had already been sent out on mission trips. Oh, but this was not just a job that they had. They spent all their time with Jesus. They were his disciples, but they were also his co-workers, and they were also his admirers, and they were also his friends. In fact, Jesus was the best friend that these men had. Oh, and they had some dreams. Slowly at first, but they had finally become convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The one that God had promised to Israel for centuries. As that truth gripped them, their excitement grew. Finally, Israel was going to have a king like King David. Finally, the oppression of centuries was going to end. Finally, God's promises of blessing and prosperity would become a reality. Oh, they dreamed the great dreams once they realized who Jesus is. And again, more recently, some alarming things had been happening. Instead of the Jewish leaders coming to believe what was obvious now to the disciples, the hostility toward Jesus was actually increasing. In fact, there were rumors circulating about plots on Jesus' life. Indeed, Jesus himself was talking like he was going to die. That very night he had said, I'm going away where you can't come. Oh, but that's not all. Jesus also told them that they too would be hated and persecuted. They would be excommunicated from their synagogues. Even people would kill them thinking they were serving God by killing them. Oh, to say that the disciples were confused and afraid is a colossal understatement. They were totally blown away. They feared they were about to lose Jesus and with him everything that mattered to them. This was the darkest hour for these disciples. Perhaps you know about dark hours. Not with the particulars of their situation, None of us have been exactly there, but with the emotions, the grief, the confusion. Perhaps you too have walked in that darkness where you just don't understand what on earth might God be doing. How could these things be happening to me? You may be there this morning. The world crushing down on you. It leaves your head swirling, doesn't it? Oh, but if that were not enough, Jesus does not seem to be too sympathetic toward his disciples. If we look at verse 5 and 6, Jesus says, Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask where you're going. Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. Jesus chides them a bit for their preoccupation with their own trouble. He seemed surprised at their grief. He acts like they don't trust him. The late Ray Stedman described the situation this way. He said, Jesus is saying to them, why don't you ask me some questions? 
Aren't you interested in what's going to, ha- go, what's going to happen when I go away? Instead, all they can think of is what that's going to mean to them. Another writer puts it very pointedly. He says, instead of focusing on the important matters, the disciples were indulging in a pity party. They responded to Jesus' announcement by focusing on themselves, their sadness, but also the next stage in God's plan, how that might benefit them or hurt them. Their problem was simple. They were self-centered. They wanted their life to be one of joy. They did not enjoy the prospects of suffering. I know that sounds hard, considering their deep sorrow. But you see, they were missing the whole point. In their darkest hour, God was working out his plan, and they should have understood some of that. I make this point because we should understand some of that too. But I fear that we're so preoccupied with our own comfort that the least little problem causes us to do just what they did. We're so tempted to turn away from everything we know about the Lord and wallow in self-pity and despair. But you see, when they did that, they were missing God's glorious plan. As Jesus said in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. And as I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is not doing them harm. He's doing them good. He's not out to make their lives miserable. He's providing everything they need to serve him. This morning, I don't mean to make light of your trouble. I know I haven't walked in your shoes. But I still must tell you, there is a great principle in God's word reflected here. It was true for these disciples, and it has been true for disciples over the centuries. And it's still true for you in the midst of your sorrow. And that great principle is that in the darkest hour, God is still working out his plan. Let me give you a couple of examples. Think of this great verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It goes like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You know where those words came from? That was not some blessing pronounced at a wedding. No, those words were sent from the Lord during the darkest time of Israel's life. Because of their terrible sin, God had sent the Babylonian army to conquer them, and conquer they did. Ruthlessly, thousands were carried off to be slaves in Babylon. Thousands more were slaughtered. Cities were destroyed. The temple was dismantled. Jerusalem was burned to the ground until there was nothing left but rubble. And there in a distant pagan land where everything was wrong, where God himself put them to punish them, 
God sends Jeremiah to say this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. In other words, the Lord is saying, in your darkest hour, I'm still in control and I'm still working my plans for you. That's the message of the cross, isn't it? That was the very darkest hour in the history of the world. That was the gravest miscarriage of justice, the most heinous wickedness. That was the day of man's greatest ignorance, his most colossal stupidity, his worst rebellion. Never was there a day when God had so many reasons to destroy the world. We crucified his holy son. We treated him with contempt. We, we, we called him a criminal and punished him as a criminal. We spit on him. How could there ever be recovery from that? How could anything good ever appear on the earth again? How could there be any future for humanity? But in that darkest hour, God was working his plan of the ages. By that cruel death on the cross, Jesus made atonement for us guilty sinners. By that act of injustice, God executed justice, but executed against Jesus so that we might be forgiven. By his dying there, we are healed. By his suffering, we have eternal life. And so he calls us to live in the dying, to find his strength in our weakness, to find in his absence the power of his presence, the presence of his Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Comforter, the Advocate. Oh, I know that sometimes it all makes no sense to us at all. I think of the Apostle Paul, another example. For some reason, God had allowed the Apostle Paul to be plagued with some besetting weakness. We don't know what it, what it is. He just calls it the thorn in his flesh. And so he prayed that God would take it away. Surely God could do that. Think how much more effective the great apostle's ministry would be if that limitation was taken away. Think of how God had done so many miracles through the apostle Paul. Certainly he could do one miracle for the apostle Paul. And so Paul prayed that the Lord would remove this thorn in his flesh. And God answered his prayer. He said, no. So Paul prayed again. And God said, no. A third time, Paul poured out his heart to God. Please, Lord, take it away. Deliver me. I can't live this way, Lord. And you know what God did now? He said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. What? Did God not care about his faithful apostle? Paul must have been overwhelmed with grief, right? Actually, no. Listen to what Paul says in response to all that. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, 
so that Christ's power may rest in me. For when I am weak, he's strong. Paul had learned that in his darkest hour, God was still working his plan. And folks, it's still true this morning. For it is in our darkest hours that God is often pleased to advance his cause. It is in the dying that resurrection life springs forth. One of my favorite hymns, and this has got to be top three, I think, is a hymn by William Cooper. When Cooper was 32 years old, he lost his mind. He went through terrible dark days, finally becoming acutely suicidal. So he hired a carriage to take him to the bridge where he planned to jump into the River Thames. But the carriage driver, who had never met him before, saw what was happening and grabbed him and pulled him back and took him home. But when he got home, he took an overdose of medications, but someone found him and gave him some antidote in time to save his life. So he tried to hang himself, but the rope broke. He tried to fall on his knife, and the blade broke. This poor man couldn't do anything right. He couldn't even kill himself. But out of that agonizing life, which did not go away, by the way, he struggled with mental illness all the way till his death. But out of that life came a profound understanding of God's providence, even in the midst of darkness. A few years later, he published a hymnal with a man named John Newton. You know him. He wrote Amazing Grace. That's where that that song appeared. But William Cooper wrote 67 hymns for that hymnal. I close with my favorite. Song William Cooper wrote about a year after that chaotic suicidal day. His song goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea, and he rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind that frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but oh, sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, 
and he will make it plain. God not only does things that we never could imagine, God works his perfect plan in our darkest days. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're often overwhelmed by dark days where we do not know what's happening to us. We do not know what's happening in our family, in our church, in our community, in our nation. And everything seems so bleak. And it seems like that maybe you've forgotten us, Lord. And it seems like that maybe your plans have been sidetracked. And so thank you, Lord, for the reminder this morning that even in our darkest days, you are absolutely working your perfect plan. So give us faith to trust you. Hope when we have no reason to hope except you. Joy when sorrow overwhelms us. Confidence when we're falling apart. Oh, thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit to come and dwell within us and dwell among us and change us and use us and hold us close. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.